2: Hello, and welcome to Babbage, the Economist's weekly science and technology podcast. I'm Jason Palmer, co-editor of Espresso, our daily briefing app. Coming up this week...
0: What's wrong with Wi-Fi is that it is not going to be much good if you want to transmit data across vast distances. And... The Cassini spacecraft is on its way to Saturn.
2: The Cassini spacecraft is about to come to a dramatic end on Saturn. We hear from one of the scientists who found out that one of its moons could harbor life.
3: It's essentially one of the places in the solar system where people think the ingredients are there potentially for life to form.
2: But first, we begin with cancer, second only to heart disease among causes of mortality worldwide. In 2015, it caused 8.8 million deaths. This week in The Economist, Natasha Loader has written a sweeping technology quarterly that proclaims science will beat cancer, but that the science is only half the fight. Hi, Natasha. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jason.
2: You spent five weeks looking deep into this. I'm interested to know what kind of surprised you along the way.
1: Well, what surprised me was, although we're doing absolutely brilliantly at developing new treatments for cancer, actually many cancers are quite treatable already and a lot of people are dying really from want of access to treatment.
2: Well, I mean, this is this is kind of always the, the simplistic depiction of cancer and, you know, putative new therapies and treatments and so on is, are we going to cure cancer? So let me put that to you as a pointed question. Are we going to cure cancer?
1: Um, I think the technical battle will be won, yes. And the way I would put it is I think cancer has an appointment with destiny, if that isn't too grand. I think the way to look at it is not necessarily that we will cure every single type of cancer, but that for most cancers, they will either be curable or they will become a chronic disease that's treatable with a series of drugs. Prostate cancer, for example. In countries like Britain, the survivability of prostate cancer was about 20% 10 years after diagnosis in the 1970s. Today in Britain, uh, you can expect your 10 year survivability to be about 84%. You know, you can foresee a time when, you know, essentially the treatments will allow you to continue to survive for years and years and years. I guess although I spent 10 pages writing about all all the sort of fabulous technology, um, one of the messages I wanted to kind of leave people with was that the cures and treatments for cancer are not the technology of tomorrow. You know, it's all very well spending lots of money on R&D, and that's definitely something we should do. But I think uh, focusing more on, on how we can prevent cancer and how we can diagnose it early and how we can treat it uh, efficiently is, is really what's going to save huge numbers of lives, not something in a test tube.
2: But that doesn't stop scientists sort of testing things in tubes. What, what do you think are the, the prospects of those joining the sort of, you know, the, the existing triumvirate of treatments we've known about, as you say, for in some cases a century?
1: So immunotherapy is probably one of the most exciting developments in cancer mm, since... Maybe chemotherapy itself, maybe even more um, there 's absolutely no question this is like a, a a sort of new front on the war against cancer, but I think particularly given the expense of these drugs i, I wouldn 't want us to get you know too diverted around um, how they 're going to solve all our problems because they won 't just to finish on one example, the world has had a vaccine against a virus called HPV for you know well over a decade, I believe. And this HPV virus leads to cervical cancer. And we could save hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives if we gave this uh, vaccine to to more women and and to some men. And we just don't. And yet this is the sort of miracle uh, that we've expected from science. And yet, as a society, we've kind of failed to deliver those miracles. And so that's kind of really the message I, I want to get across is that you know, the answer isn't in a test tube, just simply because, you know, history will tell us that even when we discover these miracles, we don't always deliver them.
2: Well, look, I, I look forward to hearing more about both new treatments and how people make better uses of the treatments that they've got. Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And now we turn to the question of smart cities. If you believe the hype, smart farms will employ sensors to report on soil conditions and crop growth. Urban centers will monitor the levels of pollution and noise on every street corner. And goods in smart warehouses will tell robots where to store them and how. Getting all this to work, though, requires figuring out how to get thousands of cheap sensors to transmit data reliably across hundreds of meters, ideally using as little power as possible no easy feat. However, good news, the economist science correspondent Anna Bhattacharya has come across a solution. Hello there. Hi there, Jason. Sending signals around between sensors and connected networks of things, all of this sounds pretty much like Wi-Fi. W- w- what's wrong with Wi-Fi?
0: What's wrong with Wi-Fi is that it is not going to be much good if you want to transmit data across vast distances. Wi-Fi signals tend to peter out. They get blocked by walls and furniture and After a while, within uh, 100 meters, often they will peter out and become part of the noise.
2: Right. Um, And there is something of a solution that's been out there for a while called LoRa that tries to tackle this. What is that?
0: That's right. LoRa stands um, for long range. Um, It is a radio wave, uh, which is exactly like Wi-Fi. The frequency it uses, though, is lower. And so it travels a bit further. And it uses a sort of encoding process, a modulation process called Chirp Spread Modulation. And what that does is it gives the wave a very specific fingerprint that receivers can easily recognize at long distances.
2: And you've run across some some research that kind of makes it applicable to this sort of this broader smart cities question. What what, what are they doing differently?
0: Yeah, the problem with LoRa is that to produce that radio wave, just like in Wi-Fi, it requires a lot of power. And so... Currently, to produce those signals requires kind of bulky transmitters. Now, if you want to put those all over your farm, and each of them costs several thousand dollars, that's going to get expensive very quickly. So what these guys have done at the University of Washington is that they get a transmitter, which is plugged into the mains, produce that radio wave, and then the encoding itself is done by a chip, which reflects a tiny fraction of that signal.
2: So the, the heavy bit, the, the bulky bit, the expensive bit, uh, there's just one of, and then you have a network of just the cheap stuff.
0: That's right. And those chips cost uh, about 20 cents a piece, and uh, they can run on a watch battery for a decade. Goodness.
2: It all sounds great so far. When am I going to start seeing these in, in, out in the world?
0: Well, the researchers say they're going into production in, uh, well, less than a year, six to eight months. Uh, They're keeping quiet about the contracts that they have, but uh, they appear to have some. They say that the first use of these things is probably going to be tracking, and more specifically, tracking stuff in hospitals, whether that be uh, stethoscopes, uh, boxes of syringes, or patient gurneys. This all sounds very good. I'll keep an eye out next time in,
2: I'm in hospital to see if it's being deployed. But uh, since you're kind of deep into this research now, can you find out how to get Wi-Fi that doesn't drop out in my house? That's the important step.
0: <laughs> you might want to get yourself a boost at that.
2: Thanks very much, Arno. Thank you, Jesus. And finally, the Cassini-Huygens space mission.
0: Five, four,
2: three, two, one and liftoff
3: of the Cassini spacecraft on a billion-mile trek to Saturn.
2: Back in October 1997, Cassini-Huygens was propelled into space from Cape Canaveral in Florida. In the years that followed, it's made some astonishing discoveries, from watching new satellites form in real time, to dropping the Huygens lander on the weird moon Titan, to finding plumes of water vapor streaming off a different moon, Enceladus. That has been the mission's most important discovery because now scientists like Linda Spilker think Enceladus has the crucial prerequisites for life.
0: We know from Cassini that Enceladus has a global ocean, so you have water. We also know that there are organics coming out. We also know there's a source of energy. The South Pole was hotter and then we found evidence that deep inside there are hydrothermal vents on the seafloor of Enceladus very similar to what you'd see in the white smokers on the Earth. We know on the Earth, deep in the ocean, where no sunlight shines, around these white smokers you find life. So we wonder, perhaps around these vents, now further indicated by the hydrogen discovery, could we find life on Enceladus as well?
2: And this is why this week the probe will heroically dive into the toxic clouds of Saturn burning up as it goes and keeping Saturn's icy moons safe from contamination. The instrument on Cassini that picked up those telling plumes of water was its magnetometer. Professor Michelle Doherty, at Imperial College London, is a scientist in charge of that.
3: What it looked like to us was almost as if Enceladus was bigger than we thought. In addition to that, we found a lot of water vapour ions. And so based on those two flybys, I actually went to the Cassini project and I said that we thought we were seeing an atmosphere at Enceladus, which was a real surprise because it's a very small body and we would have thought that any way in which to generate an atmosphere, you you almost need a heat source to do it, that the moon should have long since cooled down from when it formed. So, So it was quite a surprise. And I was a little unsettled because we weren't sure if we had calibrated our data properly. But... We knew there was a third flyby planned three months later. And what we wanted to do was try and go really close on the third flyby so we could actually see what was going on. Not everyone on the project thought it was a good idea, but the majority of people did. So in fact, what they did is they changed the third flyby from 1,000 kilometers above the surface to 173 kilometers. And based on that data, we then found this really strange plume of water vapor coming from the South Pole coming out of cracks on the surface internal heat leaking out organic material. so it's essentially one of the places in the solar system where people think the ingredients are there potentially for life to form. I must confess I didn't sleep for a couple of nights before that third flyby because if we hadn't found anything no one would ever have believed anything I said again.
2: <laughs> um, now coming back to, to Saturn more generally over the past mm-hmm. six months um, Cassini's been able to fly closer to Saturn than any probe before it what's it seen so far?
3: One of the real surprising things that it's found was um, we're trying to understand better its internal dynamo field. We know that planetary magnetic fields are generated by a dynamo process in the interior. And all of the work that's been done on this in the past seems to imply that the rotation axis of the planet and the magnetic axis, there needs to be a a tilt for the planetary dynamo to actually be generated.
2: That is a a sort of a moving magnetic field that that creates a, a source of energy, if you like?
3: That's right, yeah. What we think happens is there's a region in the interior of bodies that have internal fields where currents flow. Saturn's always been a surprise because based on the Pioneer and the Voyager observations, it looked as if the tilt was really very small. Based on the observations we've taken up to the end of mission orbit. Again, it confirmed that it was really small. But there, there's some strange things happening in the atmosphere of Saturn. They generate waves in our magnetic data. We're seeing a different rotation rate depending on whether we're looking in the northern or the southern hemisphere, and it's changing with season as well. So. It's clearly not coming from the interior, but it's rather coming from the atmosphere. And so we were hoping that by getting inside of the rings, getting as close to the planet as we can, that we would be able to resolve the size of this tilt.
2: You've referred to the end of mission orbits here. It seems as if, as with all great things, this has to come to a close. How exactly will Cassini finish its mission?
3: We've had our final close flyby to Saturn, and we're now on the very final leg. What will happen is that Cassini will essentially dive into the atmosphere of saturn it will point its medium gain antenna at the earth so that uh, we can get data for as long as possible and then when the density of the atmosphere becomes too too high we will lose control of the spacecraft and so we will stop receiving data and after that we're not quite sure what will happen of course it's clear that the spacecraft will begin to tumble and will therefore burn up in the atmosphere. And that's going to happen around about 5 a.m. Los Angeles time on the 15th of September.
2: Right. That's that's such a sad story. There's uh, another reason, though, to, to crash it rather than, I mean, the, the batteries are good. Uh, everything's behaving as it should. This could just kind mm-hmm. of keep circling forever. Why not? Well, not forever, but for an extended period of time.
3: Well, we've essentially run out of fuel, Um and so even if we wanted to change our mind, you know, if we turned around to each other and said, no, 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 let's see if we can keep it going on longer, we don't have enough fuel to get it out of the orbit that it's now in. So, you know, we really need to dispose of, it sounds awful to describe it like that, <laughs> but we, we need to dispose of the safe, of the spacecraft safely because we wouldn't want it to crash land on one of the moons of Saturn like Enceladus or Titan, which potentially might have the conditions for life.
2: And the risk there is that the the craft itself carries something that would sort of pollute one of those moons?
3: Absolutely. You know, there might be some bacteria left on the spacecraft from when it was launched. I'd be surprised if there was, but you can't be too careful. And so you need to be, you, you really need to make sure that it really burns up in Saturn's atmosphere. So that it doesn't pollute any of the moons of Saturn.
2: You, you've hinted that there's some, an emotional element to the end of the mission here. Absolutely. Um, well... How, how will you feel kind of when, when that last signal comes in?
3: You know, I've been thinking about that a little. Um, it's going to be a real mixture of emotions. I'm going to be really sad. I've spent the last 20 years working with my team on Cassini and all the other teams. We've done some spectacular work together. We really have. There'll also be a lot of pride. You know, neither the spacecraft nor the instruments were designed to do the end of mission orbits, the grand finale orbits, and they have done spectacularly well. Uh, But there's also a little part of me that will be quite relieved because I'm exhausted now. Um, The last six months have been incredibly intense. In some ways, it'll be a little bit of relief because it'll then give us time to actually spend, to look carefully at the data and try and understand what, what we've been seeing.
2: And what comes next for you after that?
3: As far as uh, further into the future, my team is building a similar instrument for the European Space Agency Jupiter mission called JUICE, which will be launched in 2022. And last but not least, I'm, I'm going to become head of the physics department at Imperial from January. So I'm going to keep busy.
2: Yeah, no rest for the weary, it seems.
3: <laughs> or no rest for the wicked, whatever your point of view.
2: <laughs> Professor Doherty, thank you very much for your time. And I'm sure we'll be speaking again as all of this kind of moves forward.
3: Great. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you. Take care. You too. Well, that's it for Babbage this week. If you like what you've heard, then please subscribe to the newspaper. Go online to subscriptions.economist.com. I'm Jason Palmer. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.